Well, I want to start this morning by telling a story from Facebook. Should go, should go well, right? Um, <laughs> this past week on, on Facebook, I noticed that one of my Facebook friends, like, like a Facebook friend, right? Like, you see what I'm saying? A Facebook friend posted a comment, and she said, if you're tired of your church talking about all this race stuff, message me. I have a church that believes that we should bring the church to the culture, not the culture into the church. And I thought about that for a little bit. And I know what church she attends, a different part of the country. So I went to her church's website. And I realized a few weeks ago, they preached a sermon series, not just a sermon, a sermon series on technology and Jesus. And I thought, that's really cool. Last week, just seven days ago, I preached a sermon right here on technology and Christianity. And not one person came up to me after and said, how dare you bring culture into the church? It's interesting, isn't it? Because Christians have a long history of believing that what's happening in our world should be held up against the truth of Scripture and the gospel so that we can see how to navigate the world we live in not by what's in our social media feeds or what's on the news channels, but by the word of God. In this sermon series, we titled it Biblical Truths for a Racialized World. Not a racist world. I know some people have already made the mistake of assuming that's what we mean. No, racialized is a very particular word coined by two sociologists, and it just means that we live in a world where racial categories have real impacts on people's everyday lives. And this is indisputable. This past week, across the world, we saw stories of racial and ethnic categories having real impacts on people's lives. We might not like that it does. We might think it should not. But we live in a world where racial and ethnic categories have an impact on people's lives. And so we are talking about this because everybody is talking about this. Again, pick a news channel, pick a social media feed. Every single day, we're living in a world, it's like the water that we swim in. And who's helping you to swim in it? Someone is. Someone's teaching you how to swim and how to navigate in these waters. We believe the church should. That the church should help you know not just how to swim in these waters, but also how to change and affect the waters where good and necessary. And I know for many of us, it's hard to separate the social theories and secular movements that we see on the news from this conversation, I'm going to ask you to try. And I'm just going to state up front, we're not going to be promoting, explaining, condoning, condemning any social or secular theories or movements that are attached to these conversations around race and justice. I like what Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright had to say about this. So he says, it has taken, if it has taken modern secular movements to jolt the church into recognizing a long-standing problem, shame on us. So he's saying, if it was not Christians, but secular movements that started the conversation, he's not, he's not condoning them. He's saying, 
If they started the conversation that we should have been having all along, then we need to wake up to it. But he says the answer is not to capitulate to the current identity agenda and then to enforce it with breast-beating, finger-wagging neo-moralism. It's good. The answer is teaching and practicing the whole biblical gospel. See, the answer is not finger-wagging. The answer is not social theories. This is not about telling you who to vote for or what policies to support. This is about discipleship. This is about holding up scripture and calling the church to respond. One of our values as a church is living in the tension. And living in the tension does not mean that we're a church that throws bones to both sides. It means that we're a church that's willing to have hard conversations and seek uncomfortable truth and not avoid the parts of Scripture that make us a little bit anxious because we believe that we can have hard conversations, we can disagree on some things, and the grace of Jesus will hold us up. And I know that there are some people for whom we will never say enough and there are some people for whom even having this conversation has gone way too far. But can we agree to hold up Scripture and to see what it teaches us about how to live in the midst of this cultural moment? So here's the biblical truth we want to start with today. God is creating a new people for himself by the death and resurrection of Jesus who seek peace together for the sake of the world. So if we're going to follow the way of Jesus in these conversations We have to understand that God's heart has always been to create for himself a people who live out together what he desires for the whole world. That God's heart is a people who respond to his grace. And so we're going to look at several scriptures together. We're going to start in the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. The scriptures will be on the screen. I I would encourage you Follow along, jot these scriptures down, go back and read them, pray through them, meditate through them. But it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We'll stop there. How do you think about yourself? I mean, imagine like when you find yourself in your classroom or in your workplace or in your home or your neighborhood or sitting here in a pew. How do you actually think about yourself? Because there are some among us who think way too highly of themselves. And there are some among us who think way too lowly of themselves. And there are some, most of us, who are just sort of a jumbled mess and aren't really sure how we think about ourselves. But when we read this text in the very first chapter of the Bible, we get the message that every single human should think about themselves as being made in the image of God. That's how we should see ourselves. That's how we should see any other human. See, Genesis was written and spoken into an ancient world. And the ancient world had these uh, mythologies and 
polytheistic religions where gods were sort of these removed, all-powerful beings who didn't have the time to really deal with humans, and they were kind of bored of them, and they didn't really, uh, you know, humans were just sort of disposable nobodies in light of who the gods were. And so if you think about it that way, Genesis 1.27 is a very countercultural message. Imagine speaking into that world the, the truth that every single human is made with the dignity and the beauty of the full image of God. It's a concept known as the Imago Dei, the image of God. And Dr. King said this about the Imago Dei. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has the capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. God designed each and every one of us, regardless of our ethnic or racial identity, as fully 100% made in his image. And do you know what that means? That means that racism is a sin. That racism is a sin because it, full, it denies the full dignity and worth and image of God in other humans based on their skin color. And I know some of you are thinking, why does he even need to say that? We all know racism's a sin. I've been in church my whole life. I have never once heard racism called a sin from the pulpit. I've heard speeding called a sin multiple times. I'm, I'm dead serious. I've never heard racism called a sin. Can we just assume it? Can we assume that we all agree on that? I mean, I was raised in Alabama around people who generations above me had been in school when they were desegregated. And they didn't talk about it as if they were ashamed of what was happening before then. Doesn't it need to be said? Here's why. Because we need to be discipled into the truth, into seeing that all humans are made in the image of God. We need to be discipled into it. It cannot be assumed. What scripture tells us about humanity is that we are by our very nature sinful. We are by our very nature selfish. We are by our very nature at odds. We've seen it throughout history that we are by our nature at odds with those who do not look like us, who aren't from the same background as us. It's a part of who we are as humans, unfortunately. And so we can't just assume this. We need to be discipled into the biblical truth that every single human is made in the image of God. It needs to sink deep. We need to hold it up in front of our faces and believe it deep in our bones. 
And this is what the Apostle Paul was teaching the, the, New, the New Testament church in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus restores us all to the full dignity of the image of God, that we are one in Christ. Now, there are two ways to interpret this text. The first way is that there are no more differences, right? Jews are no different from Greeks. Men are no different from women. Uh, slaves are no different from masters. We could interpret it that way. But I don't think that's the right way to interpret this text. The second way you could interpret it is not that there are no more differences, but that the differences don't separate us anymore. And here's why that's an important interpretation of this text. Because the Jewish Christians were not told that they could not continue practicing their, their ethnic traditions as Jewish people. But they were told that they could not use those ethnic traditions to enforce upon other people if they wanted to be a part of the body of Christ. So they they weren't told that being a part of the Christian family nullified their uniqueness and their background, but it was reframed in light of what Christ had done for them. Professor Dwayne Elmer says, God apparently loves difference. He created so much of it. To be a part of God's family doesn't mean to lay down our uniqueness. It means that we are all fully welcome to the table to bring the fullness of how God made us to be. Former NFL player and pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, Derwin Gray said, the point is not to be colorblind, but to be color-blessed. It's not about sameness. It's about unity within diversity. And that is something that only Jesus can accomplish. Look, I, I know that for some of us, even talking about this in church, it, at, at best, can feel like it's a distraction. And at worst, for some of you, it feels like we're going down the wrong path. And I, I believe that that's happening for churches and Christians across the country. But I do not believe it has to be that way. Because when I read scripture, God doesn't seem afraid of what makes us different. God doesn't seem afraid of ethnicities and races. He doesn't seem afraid for his people to talk about it. Because we worship a God who has made the impossible possible in Jesus Christ for us to be united in spite of our differences, that he provides unity through our diversity because of what he's done for us in Jesus. In fact, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, 
It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you who were far off, the non-Jewish people, have been brought near, been brought into the family by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That what separates us, he has broken it down. Skip to verse 17. And he came, Jesus came came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You are family with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, the place where God dwells and puts himself on display for the world in him, in Jesus. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Uh, Cuban-American pastor Rich Velotas, who pastors in New York City, he said the question is not, will I have him over for dinner? The question is, will I have him for a son-in-law? It's a provocative quote. But what he's saying is, we're not just called to be nice to people that are different from us. We're called to become family with them. And that's a much more intimate and a much more difficult ask that's only made possible by the work of Jesus. That peace and unity is only possible through Jesus. That God is doing nothing less than creating a new family in Jesus. And that when the world is telling us that we should be at each other's throats and that we have reason to mistrust those who are not like us, Jesus gives us another way to live. That his blood, his sacrifice on the cross means that the things that separate us aren't nearly as powerful as the things that can unite us. And that we are called to model together what it means to live in mutual encouragement and compassion and relationship with brothers and sisters with whom we would otherwise have nothing in common. God desires to make himself known through his people. And so when the world is crying out for a better way to be human, God's solution is the church. A people who are unified around Jesus when unity should not be possible. One last text. We started at the beginning of the Bible. Let's go to the end. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb, the lamb who is Jesus. 
You see, one way we can talk about the book of Revelation is that Revelation is like this picture of what will be true when God has his full vision for humanity kind of restored and coming to fruition. And so this picture of a worshiping body, a multicultural, multilingual, multinational worshiping body is a picture of what God desires for us. It's a beautiful community at peace with one another because of what Jesus has done for us. So the good news is that Jesus forgives us of our sins. And that also means that he unites us to what we were meant for. He unites us to what we were made for. And we're having this conversation as a church because this is what we were made for. And Christ Presbyterian Church has to come to the table not to be saviors, not to have all the answers, but to seek the solution that God gave us, the solution that is the beautiful community, that God is creating a new people for himself by the death and resurrection of Jesus who seek peace together for the sake of the world. If you've ever seen uh, like an athlete who's being coached and they're being shamed because they haven't, lived up to expectations. Or maybe even an artist who is failing and they're being shamed because they're not good enough. What we know is that shame never leads to success. It doesn't. What we know is that the only way forward is not through shame and condescension. It is through a more beautiful picture of what humanity could be And that's what God has called us to in Jesus through the church. So Philadelphia pastor Erwin Entz once said that only Jesus is able to bear the weight of the center. Your blackness cannot, your whiteness cannot, your Americanness cannot, your whateverness cannot. God alone has the power has the wisdom, power, and grace to weave the tangled threads of different people into different people with different cultures, customs, and languages into a single tapestry of glorious beauty. Guys, I hope you see that I'm not up here wagging a finger at you. I'm not up here trying to shame you. But in light of all the conversations in our country and in our city around race, In light of all the divisiveness, I want to hold up for you what Scripture says about what it means to be created in the image of God, what it means to pursue goodness and the possibilities of a life with Jesus. This isn't about shame. This is about calling. This is about an invitation, an invitation to biblical community and a beautiful community. A community where those who are not like us and those who are like us can come and bring their full selves and be heard and be comforted and be loved and be known and be celebrated and be welcomed. What would that kind of church look like? What would it take for us? I want to invite you. This is about what God has called us to. This is about mission. In January, we had a conference 
It was virtual. But we had a conference that is uh, our annual denominational conference. I know that sounds amazing. Um, And we heard from a speaker named Daniel Yang. Daniel Yang is uh, from Chicago. He's a Christian uh, sort of leader, writer, thinker. And he said that research shows that by 2050, America will have no majority race. By 2050. 2050 is closer than 1990, by the way. Let that sink in. It's shocking. If you're under 20, it's not shocking, but it's shocking for me. 2050. It's about mission because any church that will thrive by 2050 will have to grow in our ability to reach a growing, diverse population in our community, in our state, and in our country. This is about who we're meant to be. This is about what God's calling us to be. This isn't about being divisive or shaming or wagging fingers. This is about the beautiful community that God is creating by the blood of Jesus, that he's calling us to something better, something more. And if we can let our guard down and let him in, he will do that in us as we try for it together by the power of his spirit. Let's do it. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, I am so grateful that your scriptures are dripping with truths about how much you love every single one of your created beings and dripping with truth about what it means to be your people on earth. That you have a people who you desire to reflect your glory and your grace to the world. May it be so and may it be so in us. May we not settle for less than what you're calling us to. Would you work your truth deep in your bones that we learn what it looks like in these conversations around race and justice to come to the table, to lay our preconceived notions down and to trust that you can hold us up as we have these difficult conversations and as we trust that you offer us something better than anything the world could. We love you and praise you. In the strong name of God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, amen.